Pastor Dean gave a great message on being distinctly different, which is part of what the, the Apostle Paul, and in fact, the core of what he was trying to communicate to the church there at Corinth. But, but this morning, as we head into our next passage in chapter 1, I, I want to begin with this idea, and, and I love the words of that song to even begin to frame that, is to have a gospel, the gospel, renewed in me. The gospel renewed in me. You know, you heard even from, uh, from Dean talking about our renewal conference and, and what we believe our vision is, what we believe what God is calling us to be as a church and speaking into us to be a center of renewal, to be a place of renewal, to be a place where we passionately pursue the presence of God. And it's my firm conviction that renewal individually for each one of us, that renewal for who we are as a church is always, always going to begin in the name of Jesus. It's always going to begin in the gospel. So this morning, I want to speak into the subject of a gospel as new in each one of us, a gospel renewed in each one of us. You know, we're going to be turning to to 1 Corinthians 1 and uh, verse 18. But before we do that, I I need to diffuse a couple of words that Paul's going to use. I, I wonder, has anyone here ever received a compliment? Anyone? Surely there's a couple. If you haven't, may may I cut you guys, each and every one of you, you look fantastic this morning. Now, has anyone here ever received a compliment? Boom, there you go, there you go. Now, compliments are really nice, right? They're, they're fun. It could be like, Dean, your hair looks amazing. I don't know how you get that, that wave, that, that style. I don't know if, if Lisa helps you out with that. It is amazing. Or, or, or it could be like, oh, it could be your, your shoes. They're, they're, they're just awesome. That, that's something women say to each other, right? And John as well. <laughs> is that what that was? <laughs> or like, or they could be superficial comments. You look great today. You smell really nice. I never ha- know how to take that one if someone says that. Like, do I smell bad at other times? Or why are you sniffing me? There's a couple of different thoughts that, that go through the mind. But we receive all these different kinds of compliments. Now, one of the key words that Paul is going to use in the passage we're going to be looking at today is wisdom. Someone say wisdom. wisdom. Now, when I think about a compliment, I think one of the most powerful, and I think I've only ever had someone say this to me like maybe once, maybe twice in my whole life. I'm not sure what that's communicating at this point. But when someone says, Phil, that was really wise. Phil, you showed some real wisdom in that situation. When you get that compliment with that word, there is something powerful about that, right? There's something in each one of us where we kind of, we're drawn to this sense that being wise is one of the best things that could be said about us. Now, on the flip side, probably most of us have had some criticisms in our life as well. Anyone had some criticisms? If not, let me, uh, I'm not going to do one. <laughs> you thought I was going to, didn't you? Like, <laughs> but but we, get, we get insults as well sometimes as well. And they're hurtful, they're not good. And on the spectrum of all those things, the, the other word that Paul is going to use in this passage of Scripture in contrast from wisdom is foolishness. It's foolishness. And I think one of the worst things that could be said about me is that I'm foolish, is that I'm not in control of my life, is that I make bad decision after bad decision, is that my life isn't ordered in any discernible way, that I'm not going in any discernible direction. 
And Paul's going to use both of these words when he talks about what the gospel really is. He's going to talk about a spiritual wisdom. He's going to talk about spiritual foolishness. And the key, the key idea or the key thing that I want us to lean into this morning is this idea that the ultimate expression of spiritual wisdom is to order one's life around who God is, is to order one's life around the personification of God's wisdom, which is Jesus, to order one's life around the gospel. This is what Paul's going to speak into this morning. We're ready to get into some scripture today. Come on, here we go. Open up your Bibles, and uh, we're going to start in 1 Corinthians and verse 18. And Paul begins in this way. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And what he's talking about here, he's not talking about physically people that are dying, but people that are not connected to who God is. They're experiencing an absence of spiritual life. They don't have faith in God. And to a person like that, the message of the gospel, it doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. That's why Paul's beginning. But to us who are being saved, I love the language in the NIV here, that us that are being saved, that us that are on a journey towards the center, that is Jesus. It is the power of God. For those that are being saved, they replace their faith in Jesus. It is the power of God. And then in verse 19, he's going to quote the prophet Isaiah. It says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He's talking about the nature of the gospel and what it seemed like at first glance, that it didn't make sense, that it didn't seem like a demonstration of power or strength from a Messiah, but it seemed like the opposite. And then Paul continues in verse 20. He gets a little argumentative, as he sometimes does. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Now, it was said in Corinth, the, the, the city where this letter is being written to the believers there, it said in Corinth that on every street corner, there was a, a so-called wise man, a wise person that would have his own group of followers, that would, he would communicate his own ideas, his own philosophies, his own thought about what the meaning of life was, what the solutions were to life problems, his own thoughts on religions and spirituality and God and gods or whatever it might have been. And Paul's speaking into this reality that was part of their wider culture. There was this pursuit of earthly wisdom to make sense of everything in an intelligent or philosophical way. People that couldn't come to grasp with a crucified Jesus as Messiah. And he continues, Has not God made... And this is where it gets a bit tricky. You know, sometimes when you read a passage of Scripture, you're like, wait, what? It's going to be a bit like that, so stay with me here. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Saying that, that in the world's wisdom, the gospel didn't make sense. Yet the gospel is the power and wisdom of God revealed. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. So what he's saying here is that we cannot intelligently on our own arrive at the conclusion that God is real, that Jesus is our Savior. We can't do that. But God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the gospel, the whole picture of the cross, the Messiah crucified. He was pleased through that crazy message. 
to save those who believe. Now, there's this great picture that Paul's wrestling with of the gospel, the challenges to the gospel, the gospel being revealed as the wisdom and power of God. Now, he's preaching, he's sorry, he's writing this letter to encourage the believers around what the gospel truly is, for the gospel to be made new in them, for them to distinguish the gospel as the revealed power and wisdom of God amongst all the other voices that could explain it away or describe how it doesn't make any sense. He's saying the gospel has value. You know, it's funny, the, the older you get, I don't know if anyone else has experienced this, your, your values, they change a little bit. Has anyone experienced that? <laughs> yeah, as you get older, you realize things that used to be so, so valuable, they're not that valuable anymore. Now, I've been, I've been a parent for almost three years, and, and one of the things that I love to do with my, my two little kids on, on my day off is find a really cool park. Anyone like that? You go to a park, and, uh, and you find, you look around, and you'll be observing all these different parks. You'll see things like, oh, that slide's the perfect size for my little boy, or that ladder's going to be the perfect kind of next level for him to overcome, or oh, that swing, that's, that's awesome. And you look at parks, and you oh, that grass is great. There's so much nice shade. The trees are awesome. There's like a little water feature there's like a little pretend shop where he can sell me meat pies and things and you notice all these things about parks and you're like man parks are awesome now when I'm driving around the place going through suburbs going to people's houses I drive past a park and I notice it any parents like this you notice parks you're like, that park is awesome I'm gonna take my kids here we're gonna go down that slide we're gonna go on that rocky thing climb up that ropey thing all very technical words that I have for recreational parks. Now, four years ago, I didn't have kids. I did the same kind of drives. I drove past parks all the time. But they're almost like white noise in my vision. I didn't notice them. I didn't appreciate them. I didn't value them. Never went to them. Now, I'm pretty sure that four years ago, the premise of a park was equally as good as it is today. The parks were equally as fun. In fact, a lot of the ones that I frequent were probably a little better five years ago. The parks were, were equally as good five years ago. They were equally as good ten years ago. Probably my whole life, the premise of an afternoon at the park has been equally awesome with your little kids. But it took something in me to change. So now there's a new value. Now that I'm a father, all of a sudden, parks are more important to me, even though their quality has not changed. Now, let's think about the gospel here. Let's think about a renewed gospel in my life. I want you to reflect on a question for a moment. How much value do you place in the gospel today, right now? How valuable is it to you? Now I'll ask another question. How valuable was it to you five years ago? The name of Jesus. The message of our Savior. The declarations that we sing, praise the name of the Lord our God. For those that are a bit older, how valuable was it to you 10 years ago? 20 years ago? Now here's my firm belief. Is that Ever since Jesus stepped out of that tomb, ever since Jesus stepped out of that tomb, 
The gospel has not changed. Ever since he stood as the risen king before his disciples and followers and gave the great commission before ascending to heaven, the gospel has not changed one little bit. It just hasn't. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. From the moment that stone was rolled away, the gospel has not changed. Do I need to say it again? The gospel doesn't change. Jesus is the same. He's redeemed me exactly the same as he did when the stone exploded from that tomb. I'm not sure if it exploded. I like to think it did. You can imagine that moment however you like. So if my value on the gospel has changed... It's not because Jesus has gotten greater or lesser. It's because there's something in me, something about the season of life that I'm in, something about the experiences that I've been forced to navigate, something about the valleys that I've had to go through, something about the mountains I've got to go over that changes how valuable I believe Jesus is. But his value doesn't change. So it's something in me that changes. You know, I want to encourage you this morning to have a renewed value in the name of Jesus. A new value on the gospel in your life. But there are some challenges. There are some barriers to experiencing the renewal of the gospel, to having a renewed sense of what the gospel is. Paul, in his context, he's going to speak into it a little bit, starting in verse 22. And here's what he says after talking about the gospel. Now, Jews, they demand signs, evidence. And Greeks look for wisdom, ideology, philosophy that makes perfect sense in their own frameworks. But we preach Christ crucified, broken, shamed, a criminal, the least of the least, which was a stumbling block for the Jews, a barrier to them taking hold of the gospel, and just foolishness to the Gentiles. It didn't make any sense. How could the Savior be, be a shamed, crucified criminal? Well, it doesn't make sense. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I love love these verses. I love this passage. Now, if you, you might have heard either, either preached here or in your own reading, talking about the Jews of the day, the, the Jewish people that had their, their history, that had, that had Moses, that had the Old Testament, that had the, the prophetic voices of those speaking to the Messiah that would come. Paul says of the Jews, they demanded a sign. And around the person of the Messiah, there was one sign in particular that was very important to them. They were living in a time where their culture was not their own. They were governed by Rome. They'd lost who they were in their history. 
They were, they were in some ways oppressed. They were in some ways forced to let go of who they were as God's people. And they believed that the sign that would indicate that the Messiah had returned is that there would be a national restoration of Israel that the Messianic king would lead Israel into a new golden age like they knew in their history in the time of David. That it overthrow Roman occupation. That it would be a victorious Messiah, a national figure. That was the sign that they looked for in the coming of the Messiah. So, of course, if that was your expectation of what the prophesied Messiah would do, and for them it it's very difficult as a, uh, a Western Australian living in the 21st century. But as best as we can to step into their world, living the way they were living under Roman law. And they earnestly believed and their expectation was that the Messiah would change that. Then what they saw instead was their king shamed, broken, and defeated on a cross, a Roman cross, which they believed the king was coming to overthrow. It was almost the complete opposite of what they expected, quite literally the opposite. Not a victorious king over Rome, but a king completely broken at the hands of Rome. It was a massive stumbling block for them in their belief. Because their expectation was so far removed from what Jesus actually came to be. Now, here's one of the real challenges of faith, if we can try to bring this now into our context. If I think about what, and this is my, my best efforts to, to read into what's going on here. If I think about what the Jewish people were doing at the time of Jesus, is that they were taking the wisdom of God, it's the gospel. Paul's describing it as, as the gospel. And then they're filtering God's wisdom through their own framework of expectation. And as they do that, they discover they've got this massive problem in their belief system. Now, in one hand, we're all doing this every day. Whenever we think about our faith, we're bringing what we know of who Jesus is into our own frameworks. What I want to invite you to wrestle with a little bit is to ask the question, what are the expectations that I'm placing on the wisdom of God in the gospel in my life? Are there expectations that are of me and not of God? Are there expectations that I place on who Jesus is in my life for the gospel to make sense in me? What are they? Are they causing me to lose some of my heart of faith? Or in the wrestler, are they causing me to take hold of more of who Jesus is? Yeah, I'd encourage you to, to follow that thread in your own life. A great conversation to have, to, a great conversation to have with people that, that you trust, that you love, maybe in connect groups, in journey groups. So what are the expectations that I'm placing on Jesus that perhaps don't match up with who he is, with what he came to be? We're going to go a little further in the scripture. In verse 26, Paul goes a little further and starts to talk about the impact of the gospel on the life of the believer. And he says this, 
And, and in some ways, it's a little unkind. <laughs> Imagine yourself receiving this letter. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Jeez, thanks, Paul. <laughs> it's like, is this a letter of encouragement? Or what do I, what do, I do with this here? Yeah. Uh, not many were influential. Hmm. Not many were of noble birth, which is just a bit of a rough bunch in the eyes of Paul. But God chose the foolish things. And here's what I love, what, what Paul's about to do here. He's about to take the message of the gospel that in weakness there is strength, and he's about to place it on the life of the believer. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. A king crucified. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things. Jesus on the cross, he was despised. It was a place of shame, pain, and defeat. Paul goes further, and the things that are not a crucified king to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us again wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So think about this passage of Scripture. I hear Paul's, Paul's words. I'm reminded of the reality that there's both weakness and strength in my life. For each one of us here, there is both spaces of weakness and there are spaces of strength. There are things that are lowly. There are things that maybe in ourselves we even despise a little bit. And there is also greatness. There's sin in my life but there's also righteousness. There's a sense that everything that Jesus is on the cross and in his resurrection is a picture of my life. And Paul uses this wonderful expression at the very end. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm going to invite the team to come up and we're going to go somewhere here for a minute. Because when I think about what boasting is, normally, normally we have a pretty negative connotation with that, right? If we're, we're, we're boasting, it's kind of broadcasting something about ourselves that we want other people to know. So generally, when we boast, we boast about things that we believe are positive about ourselves, right? And, and also, you know, in particular in our culture, boasting doesn't go so well. So we don't often do it. Maybe we'll see it in younger kids or we can remember doing it when we were kids, because there's something about boasting about what's good in me. That's, that's not a positive thing to do. <laughs> that's not a great thing to do. Likewise, we can also broadcast to others what is weak in me. We can have conversations. We can be real about our faults and our failures. And in another sense, that's boasting. Publicly declaring realities about who I am. Now, Paul... As he layers the gospel, both the weakness and the strength of Jesus and how it's flipped, he layers that over our lives and says, boast in me. You know, when I see the picture of the cross and I see the picture of the gospel, I can boast in Jesus in both my weakness and my strength because Jesus 
was my weakness and Jesus is my strength. I can boast in Jesus. I can say I am weak like he was weak. I'm sinful as he became sin. I'm lowly as he became low. I'm unlikable as he was despised. Man, sometimes I'm foolish as he became the fool, a king shamed upon a cross. I can boast in my weakness and know that Jesus is with me. But then when we take hold of the gospel and we take hold of the reality that the gospel is the wisdom and power of God revealed and we take hold of it with renewed value, we can start to boast in a new way that we don't just boast in our weakness knowing that Jesus was there, but we can boast in our strength. We can say, I am redeemed because he redeemed me. I am strong because he is strong. I am holy because he made me holy. I am righteous because he is righteous. I'm chosen because he chose me. I'm not forsaken because he is for me. I'm renewed because he made me new. Come on, let's stand together. Can we stand on our feet? That there is newness in the gospel. You know, this morning, I want to invite you to boast with me. I want to invite you to get boastful this morning. To boast in Jesus. To declare who you are. Not because of any greatness in any one of us, but because of the greatness of who Jesus is. We're going to sing a song together. And we're going to get boastful about Jesus. We're going to get boastful about who we now are in Him. We're going to renew the value of the gospel in our lives. Would you pray with me? Jesus, in this moment, I pray that you would do something by your Spirit. We're going to boast in your name this morning, God. We're going to boast in our weakness. We're going to boast in our strength. We're going to boast in our sin. We're going to boast in our holiness. And Jesus, as we do that together, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring a renewed value for the gospel in each one of us. Jesus, that you would make it as new, that you would draw a line in our souls that step over and say, Jesus, you matter. Your gospel matters. Jesus, we seek you this morning. We praise you this morning. We boast in your name this morning. Come on, church, let's boast together.